Here in the future, it's uh, Father's Day, Sunday, June 20th, 2021. Originally, I recorded this uh, sometime around a year ago almost or whatever. But this is to all the fathers. Um, I'm a dad. And um, this is specifically to all the fathers who got fucked over. And... Uh, who got fucked over with their kids and all this other shit, the injustice, believe me. According to what I believe, if it means anything, justice will be served. You know, for me, I had a different, darker set of cards. You're going to hear it on this episode. I wanted to re-edit it today and send it out again. And uh, it was important. So... Here's the uh, Father's Day fucking re-edit, how I got my fucking stripes, and I hope you uh, hear it, and I didn't want too much time to go past, and I thought it was an important story to go ahead and uh, re-edit it again and send it out again, so here we go. Happy fucking Father's Day, motherfucker. Late. We've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. Houston, we have a fucking problem. All you can do is tune in, buddy. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. That's right. You're listening to Adam Air, M-D-G-E-D, Underground Cartoon Fucking Therapy. Mental illness is a fucking bitch. And, uh, you know, we all know what it's like to fucking deal with fucking mental illness on some level, but what if it got too bad? You know? What if it got too bad? What would you do to save your own life? Well, I'm going to tell you what I did. (laughs) Welcome back, guys. Smoking some Gorilla Glue. (laughs) Well, welcome to the episode called... How I got my stripes. And depending on how much work you do for people, and what you do for yourself, will define what kind of hero you are. Maybe you're a dickhead and you're like, I don't want to fucking talk about heroes. Fuck heroes. Well, people need heroes though, you fucking asshole. And you know what? Maybe you should stop being such a fucking dick. I'm going to tell you how to beat the odds. Remember Han Solo telling that C-3PO dick to shut the fuck up and never tell him the odds? Well, I'm going to do it anyway. Everything was against my ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dealing with fucking idiots and numbskulls and fuck faces my whole fucking life abusing dicks. Well, there's a share of good people out there, too. They will keep your back. I want you to know it. You can't count on that shit though, dude. No one's going to hold your hand and rub your balls three times and give you the fucking magic answer. So welcome to the episode. (laughs) I'm going to tell you how hard it was to tell inner city mental health to go fuck itself. 
and how I ended up in the best and third best hospital in the fucking whole world off of a novel I wrote called I Krakow, Testimony to Mental Illness and Conquering the Underground Entertainment Industry. Well, I'm going to read you an excerpt out of my brain from that shit. So smoke up, load the fucking bowl, and let's get it fucking going. You know what I mean? Oh, man. This is a fucking hard one to fucking hear. But, uh, my friend said I needed to put some more nostalgia on the motherfucker, so this is one of the more nostalgic stories <laughs> that I have. And, um, it is pertaining to the core root of what this show is made of, which is the discussion of PTSD. I have CPTSD. I know other people that have CPTSD. A lot of people don't even know what CPTSD is yet. Well, proper name is Complex Post Traumatic Stress Disorder. But I wouldn't have known that if um, I had just gone by what inner city mental health had told me I was diagnosed with, you know. Um, Schizoaffective. I'm not fucking schizo-fucking-effective, idiots. You know, they're going to tell you all this shit. I think a lot of it was just based at that time. I had the unfortunate timing of coming in right when Big Pharma was getting, you know, its money shot at the beginning with mental health because mental health had gotten nowhere. No one was giving a fuck then. And secret investors came in with big pharmaceutical money and big pharmaceutical timing and had, you know, you could totally tell who they were paying off. And then I'm going to tell you about some sadistic doctors that I had to deal with, including Loki himself. <laughs> All this, man, is a uh, part of the story. I mean, you got to go back. You got to go back to fucking... 98, <laughs> pretty sure that's what the time was, and um, it was Father's Day. Oh, God. It is just this evil, too, man. My parents were psychotics. If you got to go back and listen to the Hell for Leather, or... Uh, Excuse me, not Hell for Leather, but Hell is for Children episode, which is not funny. It's about child abuse. Uh, it's a dark-ass episode. I went ahead and recorded myself having an actual PTSD attack. You can go back and listen to that one. So anyway, I got a cool-ass girlfriend. We're living in Southern Illinois. Pretty good deal on a house. Work for trade. Work for rent. Things are going well. Starting to f submit books to Fanographics, man, in Seattle. And I'll save that submission story for another time, but... It was during the submission process that my real mom, not the mom that I have on the show, you guys, okay? That's the, the show I have on the... You know, the mom I have on the show, rather, 
brought to you by Gorilla Glue today, um, is uh, my adopted mother, Miss Maggie Magneto. And you don't want to fuck with her. Anyway, my real parents were psychotic, man. My mom's a fucking psycho. And at that time in 98, when I was living there, it was Father's Day. She called me up. And at that time, I was trying to keep things together with my mom and my dad. Like any good kid will try, regardless of how abusive the parents are. It's just how it fucking goes. <clears throat> and my mom said, you better sit down. I'm like, why? So like, well, your dad ended up, you know, raping your sister. Oh. Why is my mom telling me this on Father's Day? Why is my mom telling me this on fucking Father's Day? My dad was an abuser, man. I mean, he beat me fucking pretty fucking bad, tortured my ass, did indescribable things to me. Yep, there was some sexual abuse there too, for sure. But I had always blocked it out of my mind that it might have been happening to my sister. I just figured he was fucking with me. But after he told me he was with, after my mom just told me that my dad had fucked my sister, basically. Oh. I remember, like, saying pretty hurt, hurtful things to my mom. I was like, you knew this whole time. You left me in this den with this pedophile fuck when we were kids and you guys got divorced and you left me in there. And you fucking beat the living shit out of me every goddamn night. And you took my sister, and you left me behind. In a hell, while my sister got to apply for college and get awesome people around her that were helping her out through this. You know, same thing happened to me. What happened? What happened to me? No one gave a flying fuck. They never did. Now I got my mom trying to fucking hurt me every time she can. The only reason I could purposely think that she would tell me on Father's Day is because she wanted me to fucking kill this motherfucker. It worked. <laughs> I didn't kill him. <laughs> I definitely felt that fucking way. I called him up. He was hanging out with his parents. I was like, hey, I just... My papa got on the phone. He didn't know this kind of abominable, unheavenly rage that was behind me. Hey, Papa, can I talk to my dad? Oh, yeah, that's cool. My dad gets on the phone. Hey, babe, because, you know, we were doing pretty good at that time, I thought. Till then. You know, it's, a, it's like an A-bomb. Fucking hit you. I told him, I know what you did to my sister and when I see you dude I'm gonna fucking cut your fucking nuts off and your fucking dick and I'm gonna fucking shove them through your fucking eye sockets you fuck I 
All I heard was silence. The mine had cracked. Inside two weeks, I suddenly quit smoking cigarettes and developed a really bad diabetes-style diet, which I still kind of carry traces on of it to this day. And I went from weighing about 160, 170, and gained twice that. I was at 300. I naturally just became a big motherfucker because everything I did was involving working out or walking or just some kind of crazy ass shit where I was just always exerting my muscles and inside the time I had to sit there all that time cartooning my body was developing into a fucking monster my brain was cracked there's no real way out of it yo My girlfriend fucking, I told her, and she pulled the bitch move and uh, decided she couldn't handle it. And that broke up my relationship with my girlfriend, who I thought loved me. <laughs> oh, she took half my shit. <laughs> Wasn't even hers. <laughs> what the fuck? Huh. Sent me on a bus. I ended up back in Colorado. Good old black and dusty Colorado, home of the fucking no soul motherfucker. There might be rock and roll, but the soul was definitely missing. Fucking seven years later, man. You know, after this. Father to stay a bomb is what I call it. <laughs> I've done pretty good about stifling it, but you know my life really wasn't going that that great. You know, and things kind of fell apart. You know, when it rains, it pours. The Morton girl. Go back and listen to the Stale Ink episode with Cole Miller. Like I said, it's an awesome episode. But the end of the Stale Ink, you know, project was basically me getting fucked over by my partner who was smoking ice. You know. And, uh, yeah, he was on ice, not Sesame Street on ice, unfortunately, not the cool shit. Nope, um, drugs tore us apart. I wasn't on drugs yet, but, uh, I was about to be. Turns out I had a fucking mental breakdown at the dairy I was working at in Denver, Royal Crest. Was doing pretty good, was making pretty good scratch. Um, but finally, seven years after, you know the A-bomb, I finally got hit with it. I couldn't stifle it anymore. <laughs> couldn't shove it back any further than I had. It just kept coming back to the surface. And the more bad shit was happening on the outside around Denver and shit, the more uh, this uh, instance was fucking me over. Until finally I was just losing contact with my kid, losing contact with everybody. One day I had a mental breakdown at the fucking dairy, and uh, my bosses piled me into the company car, drove me to St. Luke's, dropped me off. <laughs> and the next thing I know, I was just in my apartment all the time, strung out on watching uh, 
episode 29 of Twin Peaks from the second season back in uh, 91. When they all enter into the Black Lodge, if you're not a Twin Peaks fan, I'm not going to bore you with it. It's not what this is about, but there was something about Wyndham Merle's character that I just could relate to. <laughs> That's pretty scary, <laughs> if you know who that character is. Kenneth Welch's, uh, uh, you know, debut as a FBI agent who loses his mind trying to find another dimension and and goes crazy. I don't know. There was something about the Black Lodge and all that shit, but uh, it was just unfortunate that things just went down the way that it did, man, you know? Well, this began my soured career into the fucking mental health industry. I'm in St. Luke's and the doctor's fucking insulting me and then putting me on new meds. Big Pharma was just out. It was some dangerous shit. All I did was sit in my fucking apartment, man. I didn't want to talk to anyone, dude. Fuck this shit. Watching Twin Peaks. (laughs) I guess it happens to the best of us, man. I hadn't drawn in a while. The last shit I had drawn was fucked up cartoon animal romance, and then that was it. I kind of abandoned everything. I had a friend that I went to go see a show one time. I managed to go to a show one time, and I met a friend named Summer, who owned a flower shop on uh, Capitol Hill, next to the old cricket on the hill bar. She had to rescue me, man. She knew I was fucked. She's like, you can't stay here anymore. I was like, well, I'm getting ready to get booted anyway. I remember picking up this toaster oven. I said, you remember, you know this was my girlfriend's fucking toaster oven? She goes, yeah. And I was like, I fucking hate this motherfucking toaster oven. And I smashed it <laughs> right in front of her. She left. She wasn't mad at me. She was scared, but anybody would have been. She ended up rescuing me. I got into a fucking flower shop. I was staying in the back of this flower shop. I had all my shit in the storage room. I pretty much lost all my shit. What was going on with my life? They had me on four different meds, man. I couldn't stand it. I ended up at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless telling this fucking bitch that was working there that I didn't want to take their fucking dissolvable Zydas pill anymore and that it was making me worse. She got up and tore open a package, grabbed me by my throat, and proceeded to shove a fucking pill down my mouth. Like it was a fucking Tic Tac or some shit. I fucking pushed that bitch's hand off me. I said, you get the fuck off me, bitch. (laughs) She cried out, security! And Isaac and Washington came over to fucking apprehend me. (laughs) Meanwhile, the homeless in the clinic were like giving me the applause. One guy actually stood up and was all, yeah, dude. Fuck yeah, man. Congrats. (laughs) 
They locked me up into St. Luke's again. The second time. Oh, man. I kept trying to kill myself. One famous time with rat poison out of Walgreens on uh, Colfax there next to the lion's lair. <laughs> Eventually, I applied for a mad genius program online that ran off of no pills. It took about three months. One was out of Harvard and one was out of Stanford. I contacted my guys in uh, Park Slope and I told them about it. And they said they would keep in touch with the administration. The day came when I was supposed to go to California to go do this thing. And the state of California pulled the plug on the project. That probably wasn't the best thing that could have happened to me at that point. The program that they yanked, by the way, was an electromagnetic bipolar research program that ran with no drugs. I'll tell you later how that works. Well, I'm going to go ahead and get to this fucking part that I want to tell you. After I got the fucking plug pulled on me, and by the way, the program ran off of these two gigantic electromagnetic spheres that just ran over your head. For two hours, that was it. You just sat in some room with these things going over your head. It's supposed to change the polarity of your brain. You're going to feel better. I haven't forgotten the idea, and I got a general idea about how it works, and I'm going to keep that. So when I do become filthy rich, I'm going to build those motherfuckers everywhere so that people can go sit in electromagnetic bipolar uh, restorative rooms, I guess. That's what they would be called, you know. Anyway... That's down the road from now, and it will happen long after I've gotten off this crappy Android phone that I record all these garbage can fucking sounding podcasts with. <laughs> That's why, guys. Anyway, <laughs> you know, I the, my, the guys in Park Slope, they were a family that ran a business. I'm not going to release their names or what the business was. They decided to go ahead and sell artwork for me that I was making. They were kind of my, you know, group, man, that was working for me out. And Parks loves some ritzy shit, so I had to write backing at that point. Anyway, um, it didn't really uh, go well when uh, my friend called me, my associate there. He called me from Park Slope and he said, I just got off the phone with Stanford University. I know you're supposed to leave tonight, but you can't leave tonight. And I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, well... There is no program. I'm hearing this at 8 in the morning. You know, I'm like, what do you mean there's no fucking program? No, there's no program anymore. The state of California pulled a plug on the project. I'm sorry. There's just, there's nothing there. I kind of hung up. They tried to call me back a bunch. They were worried. They already knew I was suicidal as fuck. I ended up buying this fucking bus ticket, tried to get out of Portland. And I was going to go to Ohio. You know, and if you listen to the Northeast Ohio episode, you know why I got ties there. I was going to head back there and off myself, man. Fuck it. You know? Um, not very pleasant. Starting to snow out. <laughs> I ain't got a place to go. <laughs> I'm in the bus station, and 
I got intervened three times by three different people. And you know that number three in numerological terms is fucking some pretty powerful infinite shit. The most powerful of the numbers, probably. Besides nine. And, um, and six. And everything divisible of three. Um, you know, sitting in this fucking bus station. I'm ready to go kill myself in Ohio. <laughs> there was really nothing left for me. And, um, I remember I got intervened. And I remember it was a... a First, this guy who was a video bootlegger, and this guy had all these punk... I knew him. His name was uh, whatever. But uh, he fucking had all these, um, you know, videos, thousands of videos, man. And he came in, he goes, where are you going? And I was like, what are you doing here? And he goes, I don't know. I just felt like I just needed to come in here. I don't know why. I never come in here, dude. And I was like, why are you here now? And he goes, where are you going? And I was like, I'm not, I'm going to leave. And he goes, I don't think you should leave. You shouldn't leave, dude. Don't leave. He goes, I don't know what you're doing, but don't. And I was like, why are you telling me this? And he goes, I don't know. It's kind of hung out. And then this Mormon came in. Her name was Ross. And she was this, you know, the Mormon Ross. That's what I called her. <laughs> and she kind of started talking to me and shit. And I was like, don't drop some Mormon shit. And he, she goes, oh, no, no, I don't, you know, operate that way. But look, I don't think you should leave. <laughs> what? So weird, dude, you know, and he, and she just kind of hung out with the other dude. And then this white witch chick came in and she was like, the spirits led me to you. I was like, not again. <laughs> oh God. All three of them are telling me not to leave, not to leave, not to leave. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to fucking leave. And, um, you know, my bus came, they just stood there and they're like don't do it <laughs> i was like what is this is the twilight zone again as usual in my life guys you you've heard the stories this is no exception i um i wanted to get the fuck out of there dude and the bus was revving up at last call and i kept looking at them i kept looking at the bus and then the motherfucking bus pulled out and I was like, okay, which one of you jokers is going to let me stay with you then, man? It's snowing, it's night, where am I going? They were like, oh, you can't stay with me. And all three of them backed out on that. <laughs> and then they left. And I was sitting there on the street at night in Portland. My bus had left. Fucking snowing. Lightly, but it's cold. I went and sat at this bus stop and I met this 16-year-old kid. He was a transvestite. And he was turning tricks to fucking eat. <laughs> and he looked sick as fuck. I was like, what's wrong with you, dude? And he goes, I got full-blown AIDS. He's like, I fucking don't even have long. And I was like, how old are you? He's like 16. I was like, fucking America. I was like, you know you don't have to fucking suck dick to fucking get a meal. I'll teach you how to scam food. So, I did. I fucking... Um, you know, I taught him how to scam McDonald's. It started there. We got McDonald's. We scammed, uh, Wendy's. There was a Burger King down there. I got that motherfucker. You know, we did, uh, Chipotle. All kinds of shit, man. I mean, we did all kinds of restaurants and shit. And the kid ended up having the best time of his life inside this week. And there used to be this cop bar near Steelbridge. It's like right under it. 
there's all this junk and crap from all these people camping out over there over the years, you know, junkies and shit. The cops go in there, they have a cup of coffee, they act weird, and then they leave. I don't think it's still there anymore. But, um, you know, at that point, 2004 is when this was. And me and the kid were sitting there at night. And, um, you know, he was like, dude, I gotta go. I can't see you again. And I was like, why? And he goes, because I'm not going to make it, man. He's like, good luck. And I kind of sat there and I was just delirious from being on the street for a week with this kid and kind of, you know, watching out for him. And there were a couple of people trying to advance on his ass and I wouldn't let it happen. Oh. He was thankful for it, but he was like, I got to go. <laughs> and he left. He went outside. I kind of sat there. Two cops were in the corner and then they left. And then I got this weird feeling, man. And I walked outside. I walked under the bridge. And there was the kid laying there dead. He was laying there dead, and uh, I found this old rotten American f flag that someone had been, you know, using as a tent wall or some shit. And I took his body and I wrapped it up in the flag honorably since America had taken his life. And I left him on a patch of grass where I knew he would be found. And I walked off and I thought about this kid, you know. And I went to this convenience store and I fucking waited till the guy was like in the back. I was like, hey, can you uh, show me uh, something or whatever? And he went in the back to this you know, from the cash register, and I stuck my hand up and grabbed a pack of smokes. Not the easiest trick to do. I was like, never mind, hey, man, I gotta go. He's like, okay. I walked down the street, packed my new fucking stolen smoke, sat on a bench, thought about this kid, thought about the fucking bitch trying to shove pills down my throat, and my dad being a child rapist. How none of the cops gave a fuck. Thought about that kid wrapped up in that blanket, that flag. <laughs> I had tears rolling out of my eyes, and I said, you know what? I'm going to do something. I'm going to go to fucking Stanford University anyway. I took a train to Beaverton, and I scammed chilies for a plate of uh, chicken crispers. And the girl sat down, the waitress, and she was pretty cute. Oh, what are you writing? I was like, well, I've been writing this journal since I've been, you know, in school. It's an advanced animation film script. Really, it was a big-ass suicide letter, but I didn't want to tell her that. I said, and the main character ends up getting fucked over by the mental health system. Well, what does he do after that? I said, he fucking gets his balls up and he fucking does the right thing and he goes to fucking Stanford University anyway. And I burped all loud and gave her a kiss on her cheek. And she goes, hee hee. 
Got fans calling in, by the way. And then I left. And I fucking decided to go to Stanford. And it changed my life. I wanted to go to Stanford, but I wasn't confident yet. I remember I was walking around thinking about that kid, just really drilling into my head. And then I remember, like, I felt like I got this kind of weird calling to go behind the Amtrak station. And I wanted to uh, go check out something that was there. Or I was looking for something. I felt like something was there. Just walked around for a minute. Kind of found this little bank of grass and laid there and just kind of watched trains roll by for a minute. And then I remember feeling like, hmm, I need to get going, man. I need to go right now. I just need to go. And that's what I did. I fucking took the fuck off and I made a solid decision. Even though I was scared to death. By the time I made up my mind that I'm going to Stanford after scamming that chilies for those delicious chicken crispers, I was like, well, you know what, dude? This is the most positive I felt about anything and fuck it, you know? So I ended up calling my, uh, my associates in Park Slope from the Greyhound station and they were like, well, that's not a good idea. I told them, I'm going to hitchhike to Stanford. They're like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> I was like, well, it doesn't matter what you guys think. I'm going to go. And then I hung up. And uh, I took a little bus out to Seaside, Oregon, which is about 88 miles away from the coast. I wanted some relief. So, you know, I went and jacked off in the fucking toilet, you know, rubbed one out. <laughs> Maybe TMI. <laughs> Who cares? You guys know what it's like when you're mentally deprivated. You need some some, some kind of fucking sensory fucking sh feeling. You know, just some shit. I had no idea what I was doing, dude. It was fucked. You know? Or at one point, I was halfway there. And I felt like I was going through this dream vortex. You know? I was like, well, I'm in the dream now. Ended up at the seaside hostel. And the guy was nice and he gave me a room for a week. And inside of like a couple days, you know, of hanging out at the aquarium, looking at the world's largest lobster, <laughs> Webster. And walking around on the beach, I decided I'm going to have another mental breakdown. So uh, I did. And then I uh, ended up going to Astoria to this emergency psych therapist guy and this dude was like fucking Loki it was Loki <laughs> all he did was talk down to me make me feel crazy he's like you're delusional thinking you're gonna go to Stanford I told him that's what I was doing he's like nah dude right before I uh, went to the emergency you know guy I had met a friend named Chris 
and he's working at the Seaside International, you know, motel or whatever on the boardwalk. He's running this thing for his friend. He's in a Molly Crew cover band. But he's like a metal minister. He's like one of these heavy metal minister dudes, you know? <laughs> Biker. He liked me. He was like, cool, man. He didn't know I had a nervous breakdown and ended up going to see Loki. Loki was like, you know, if I were you, I probably would off myself. This guy said this shit to me in Astoria. I shit you not, dude. You're a loser, da-da-da-da. I sat there in disbelief. I couldn't even believe it. Took this painful fucking bus back to Seaside. And I was out on the beach, and I walked by Chris, and he goes, Hey, where are you going? I was going to the beach. He's like, what are you going to do out there? I was like, I'm going to swim until I can't swim anymore. And he goes, no, you're not. I was like, yeah, I am. I told him what had just happened. He actually started crying. <laughs> he could feel the pain. He's like, nah, man, come on. He's like, try this. This is saltwater taffy. This is the best saltwater taffy in the world that comes right out of Seaside right here. And, uh, I had another friend living in Seaside. She had a tattoo studio. Her name was Kimbra. And she wasn't available. That's who I wanted to talk to, but I'm glad it was Chris instead. He's like, I'm gonna give you a couple nights in the motel for free. Like, get out of that fucking hostel. And he's like, you know, the God's telling me right now, you gotta go to Stanford. You have to go. And I hadn't heard that. And I felt it. And I didn't even believe in God or whatever at that point. I was about to. You know. We sat there on the beach. I looked at the ocean. I thought about how I was going to swim out there and drown. And now instead I'm being encouraged to go save my life. While I eat fucking saltwater taffy with my Motley Crew cover band metal minister buddy Chris here. I looked up and all the stars were out. And I knew that this shit was epic, man. The morning I left, Chris made me eggs, bought me a pack of camels. I made a sign that said, San Francisco, and I got on the fucking Highway 101. Made it all the way down, dude. But, uh, on the way there... I remember I had made it to about right outside of Coos Bay, not bad, in the first day, you know, starting from Seaside. Earlier I had gotten picked up by this gay couple and the one guy was dying of AIDS. And these guys blew their own glass pipes and grew their own fucking kind bud. And then I smoked with them and they gave me a glass pipe with some weed in it and I tucked it in front of my pants. I kind of fucking forgot about it, you know. By the end of the day, after a series of rides and Audubon adventure and fucking just, you know, checking out the fucking Oregon coast and its fucking entirety is just amazing, you know, off the 101, jagged ass road, you know, and uh, I uh, 
was by a lake and I was like, well, I'm probably going to end up camping here. And, um, I had my guitar and a backpack. That was it. And I saw it down the road. I saw this fucking green VW bus fucking pull around a bend after no signs of life for a minute, dude. And I was like, well, that's my shit, dude. You know, <laughs> that's my shit. Chick named Alicia pulled over. It's a black girl. She's 31 years old. And she's knocked up with this 16-year-old boy's fucking baby. Some Mexican dude. <laughs> she told me all about it inside five minutes. I was like, oh my god. I was like, you know that's illegal, right? She just kind of looked at me. I was like, I'm going to take this far ride as far as I can. She said she was going to... Humboldt, and I was like, close enough, motherfucker. I remember we got to this fucking gas station a few hours after we had been in the <laughs> fucking bus for a while. I was like, dude, I got money. I'll fucking buy you whatever you want, you know. If you need special shit, whatever. She says, what do you mean, special shit? I was like, forget it. Just get whatever you want. <laughs> We got in there, and uh, I remember she had bought this cup of fucking scalding hot tea. And I was like, be careful with that, dude. She was all jittery already. She comes running up to the fucking cashier and fucking tripped and fucking poured the fucking water all over the motherfucker. The guy knew it was hot as fuck. He goes, ah! And then he goes, huh? And the water had cooled off somehow between the cup and the guy inside a matter of a second. I thought that was a miracle. I was like, can we fucking get the fuck going? <laughs> got on the road. I remember by the time we got outside of Crescent City, she was out of gas. There was no gas stations around. I saw some lights about a quarter of a mile off the road and I took a fucking tube that she actually had and the gas gas can that she had and I was like, I'll be back in a half hour <laughs> somehow went onto this fucking land it was all locked up fucking siphoned some gas fucking broke the fuck back off the land went back to the highway, found her Filled the fucking gas until we got some gas gas. <laughs> we got up to this fucking... Hours later, you know. She's like fucking... She can't drive right, man. I don't know. She's All she can do is think about how horny she is for this fucking kid. It's like, oh God. And I saw this road sign and it said... Sasquatch Canyon. And I was like, oh my God. And I was like, not into it. <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? She's like, well, they see them out here all the time. I was like, have you ever seen one? She's like, no. And I was like, how long you lived out here for? Oh, my whole life. <laughs> you know how it goes. No one's ever saw one. <laughs> Finally, after driving back and forth up this stretch between fucking, I don't know, Shelter Cove and fucking Willits, 
which is a little stretch. She couldn't find where she was supposed to be. I said, oh my God. Just wake me up when, uh, you know, you find it. No one was on the road, and when she flipped back around again, there was suddenly a line of cars just parked in the middle of the road, not fucking moving. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I remember passing out, and I remember the sky coming up to the, the window about an hour later. Knocking on the window, I was like, what the fuck? And he said, you want to see the carnage? And I was like, uh, the carnage? He goes, yeah, come on. And he started walking back. I looked over at Alicia. She was like somewhere in zombie land. I walked up the road. I remember looking in all the cars that were parked and it looked like Pink Floyd the wall. You can't see these sketched out faces. And I got up to the rail guard and the guy goes, yeah, man, uh, me and my dog were in, in the car, you know, and I looked over and there was an SUV flat on the fucking ground. It had been fucking flat as a pancake. And I was like, you guys were in that? And he goes, yeah, we got thrown out somehow magically. Not a scratch on us. Don't even know how it happened. I was like, that seems to be going around lately. He looked at me all weird. I made it back to the fucking bus. Alicia's still in zombie land. Three hours later, fucking California Highway Patrol moved the mess. The fucking place moved and all the fucking cars moved. We moved up 30 feet, got to the land, and there it was, about 30 feet above us, in front of us. <laughs> I got out of the bus. Alicia got out of the bus. This 16-year-old kid looked at me up and down, grabbed his girlfriend's hand, disappeared into the back of the bus. I ended up passing out on a couch in an unknown cabin. And when I woke up, some stinky hippie had a crucifix over me, and I was like, oh shit, I'm in Bigfoot Canyon. Oh my god. I pushed that fucking hippie out of my way. <laughs> I jumped outside the cabin, looked around me, these lush green surroundings, redwood, big old fucking movie drive-in sign said, just Jesus. I was like, oh no, I'm in Bigfoot Canyon. I'm on some radical Christian fucking compound <laughs> in the middle of the redwoods. Great. Um, I wanted to get the fuck out of there. This one kid came up to me and was like, hey, take it easy, you know, make you some coffee, Gave me some Raisin Bran, you know, we've talking. I was like, I got to get going. I got to go. And he's like, I realize that, but, you know, you're here right now. Why don't you just chill out for a minute? I was like, I don't want to chill out. It's early enough. I want to get going. I pulled out the pipe that the gay couple gave me, and I started to light it up. And the guy, you know, before I could spark it, the guy got upset and was like, I don't condone smoking weed. And I was like, I don't really give a fuck. And I started to head out to the road, man. As soon as I got off that land and stepped onto the road, I've only seen it one other time, man. It was because I did it. <laughs> but uh, in this story, I'm pretty sure the creator did it. And made this fucking sky fucking this black and started hailing. Man, it started hailing golf balls. I was like, holy shit, we all had to run back into the cabin. After a while, you know, three hours, I missed out on all this traveling time. Now it's near the fucking end of the goddamn day already. It's already getting dark. 
and Alicia and the Mexican kid came out. <laughs> and they uh, came out of the bus and she said, hey, we're moving to Arizona to go start a fucking life. And, um, and our family, and uh, we were wondering if you could kick us down a few bucks before we leave, Adam. And I uh, looked at my wallet and I only had 20 bucks. I saw Alicia's knocked up belly. <laughs> And I didn't really think about it because that's the kind of cat I am. I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to make it to Stanford no matter what. So I gave them the money. I gave them my last 20. And they got in the bus. They fucking pulled out right away. I looked behind me and all these people were standing behind me. I didn't even know it. And the, and the leader of the fucking, you know, this compound was watching it. And he goes, that was really selfless of you, man. And he goes, I've got some decent coffee in my cabin. Would you like to join me? And I was like, oh, hell yeah. You know, sat there and talked to him. His name was Derek. And semi-nice guy. But he's a Christian fundamentalist, you know. So he's going to end up judging you. And he did. You know, his his little, you know, output was, well, you know, you're, you're cursed. And I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Went outside, you know. He started telling me about the Eel River running backwards. He goes, only in this section does it run backwards. Later on, I'll have an episode you know, with more of the backwards part of the Eel River here, because it comes back in my life again. But at this point, it was all mystique and surreal. I didn't know what I was really dealing with. This little black kid came over, you know, while we were standing by the river, and he goes, hey, Derek, don't you ever change the water in that thing? And he points at this weird plastic dirty bag. I don't know what it was for. I thought it was a boat bag or some shit, but it had dirty water in it. And uh, he goes... Well, I changed the water last week. And he looked at the little kid looked at me and goes, well, you need to change it again. Your water's dirty. And then he blinked. And then he looked right at me, dude. I was like, whoa. And then he ran off. And Derek goes, huh. Well, anyway, um, we're going to have a Bible group now. You can sleep, crash, eat. We're not going to keep you on the land. You can do whatever you want. But we're going to Bible study. So I'll see you over there if you want to come join us. And he just walked off. And I didn't think it was healthy for me to be a dick at this point. So I kind of sat in with the group. And it was just people from wherever. They were from all over the place. So there was no rhyme or reason. They were just together here. And uh, the guy says, hey, t open your book to the book of Matthew. And they started reading it. And it was some revised edition I was reading. It pissed me off. So I tossed the book. And I closed it, and I put my hands together. And I guess that's where it really starts right there, because at that point, I was about to achieve OM, and I didn't know it. I don't know many people that have achieved OM. Some people say they hit OM frequently. <laughs> I haven't heard it in a while, but... That's what I did. I fucking put my hands together. And I erased my fucking brain, dude. All the fucking good thoughts, bad thoughts, pain, happiness, memories, past, present, and future, what I wanted for Earth, what I didn't want for it, blah, blah, blah. I was like, huh. It was all black, man, for a long time. That's a hard thing to achieve. Well, the next stage was... It started turning blue a little bit. 
and then this little pinpoint of blue, and then it got wider and wider, this blue, blue velvet. And it got to where I was just in this fucking world that was blue. And I saw myself, and I was blue, and I was seven years old or something like that. I was a little kid. And I looked up and there were these two movie screens just kind of floating in the air. And one had my dad's side of the family on it. And all this violence that they did to each other. And my one side had my mom's side of the family and all the violence they did to each other. And the actions on both movies kept getting more violent and violent until finally it just turned into fucking miniature little screens, you know, little fucking whirlwinds. That's what I would call it, whirlwind. And they fell into two separate piles of dust at my feet. And this wind came from behind me. And it blew the dust. And I knew the wind. And I watched the dust fly away and I turned around. And there was the old creator of all, God, sitting on a throne of nothing. The few times I've told this story, people always want to ask, what did he look like? I'm like, he was blue, dude. What can I tell you? Couldn't really make out his face too well, but it was there. Guy wearing this robe or whatever, you know, sitting on a throne of nothing sitting on nothing and I ran to him you know and I jumped on his lap and I fucking told him straight up I was like forgive me for turning into this technological terror but I you know when I was a kid I thought you were like a superhero man you know and he knew what I was saying he smiled I loved him man I knew who it was I automatically just knew it was real. And he pointed, and I looked to where he was pointing, and I came out of it. Apparently I had been under for eight hours. I had nothing but tears and snot rolling down my face, man. Everybody had been in bed for hours, dude. <laughs> no one was there. They just left me alone, apparently. Who knows? I walked out into the fucking redwoods. I saw every fucking star was there, dude. Every star in the whole galaxy was there. And the trees were just fucking reaching their branches out into the stars. And I reached my arms up to the creator and I said, Forgive me for all the dark ass art that I'm about to do. But I want you to know that that's how you made me. And it will always be for therapy. And never for profit. And I felt this completion in me. And I stayed in the redwoods. And I fucking had a joint in my cigarette pack. And I pulled a joint out and I smoked it. On that holy land. <laughs> and then uh, I went to bed. 
I remember these guys were trying to sleep and I had these nasty lentils and I farted all loud <laughs> a few times. The next morning I woke up, you know, and uh, I got on the Highway 101 before anybody even woke up, dude. I smoked one cigarette. I smoked two cigarettes. I smoked three cigarettes. And that came out to about 21 minutes. I looked down the road. Someone was coming. <laughs> it was a couple that was going to a plumbing convention in Las Vegas. Larry and Janet. <laughs> they had some cross hanging off their, you know, uh, visor in the front of the car or whatever. And, uh... I told him the story about what was going on with me and how I needed to get to Stanford. They gave me 20 bucks. And his wife fucking looked at him and said, we're taking you straight to Stanford, dude. Larry and Janet were sure nice people. That 20 bucks came in handy. <laughs> they bought me fish and chips. Bought me a couple donuts. Like, well, what are you going to do when you get to vacation land Stanford? I was like, well, I'm going to see Mickey Mouse. I'm going to take the fucking small world that's a, after all fucking ride. The Haunted Mansion, don't forget that. <laughs> no. They were pretty concerned, I guess. I was like, well, you know, when I get there, I'm going to figure out how to get into the mental ward. They kind of looked at each other. <laughs> they gave me a ride 262 miles from the point that they picked me up and outside fucking the Ill River all the way to the front door of Stanford. <laughs> I wished them good luck, you know. They wished me good luck. They took off, headed off to Vegas. I smoked my last cigarette before I went in. I saw this little silkworm coming out of the tree because Stanford University is infested with silkworms. Little guy was coming out of the tree, all the way down the tree off a fucking little thread. I was like, that's me. He got so far and then the thread broke and his little ass fell into a crack. And I was like, and that's entertainment. I flicked the cigarette. I went into the psychology department there across from Bill Gates Auditorium or whatever. <laughs> and I put on my skeleton outfit. And fans are calling in, by the way. They love it. <laughs> anyway, I put on the crack owl outfit, you know. I had the mask. I had the Grim Reaper cloak. I had the fucking guitar. And I looked in the mirror. And I was like, this is it, buddy. Showtime. I put on the crack owl outfit. Walked past two security guards who were fucking talking about old episodes of Barney Miller or some shit. 
and I got about 50 yards up the hall. Doctors looking at me like, what the fuck? Finally, this kid with an ICP shirt's in front of me, and he goes, Oh, man, it's the Grim Reaper. And I looked at him, and I went, I'm the fucking Krakow, bitch, and don't you ever fucking forget it. And I struck a low E and went, <laughs> This drew the attention of the two security guards, no longer talking about old episodes of Barney Miller. <laughs> They put me in handcuffs. They took me to the head administrator's office. And the head administrator came out and he goes, What organization are you with? Why did you come to Stanford like this? He took off my mask and I was crying. And I said, Look, man, I know people come here all the time thinking this is a mecca of health and you guys are the best and blah, 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 but... I've been sent here by demons, angels, and everybody else, and I'm telling you, I'm not fucking leaving. He kind of understood. He looked down, and he goes, well, this hospital works the same as every other hospital. Oh, people are excited. And you know, you got to do the same thing you did in every other hospital. And I was like, well, this show ain't going to start itself, Doc. Let's get it the fuck going. So that's what we did. Well, I was in. They took me to the <laughs> main uh, waiting room. And they found the pipe that the gay couple gave me on the fucking one-on-one. I never got to smoke it. They just threw it right in the fucking trash with that beautiful green bud right in the middle of it. I remember in the ninth and 10th hour waiting, <laughs> I was like, this is some serious shit, you know? <laughs> and then the 11th hour came, and I called my guys in uh, Park Slope and I told them what had happened, and that I had made it. They were in a state of awe. They couldn't believe all the shit I was telling them. How I went into a state of ohm. The scalding tea incident. <laughs> Loki. The heavy metal minister. The whole schlabong, you know? And they were like, I can't believe it. Holy shit, dude, that's amazing. And I was like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. I'm scared. I don't want to do this. They were like, you can't leave. You can't leave. And I was thinking about when I was in the Greyhound telling them that I was going to do this. And they were like, this isn't a good idea. <laughs> and uh, I had tears rolling out of my eyes. <laughs> Some serious shit, you know. This is your life. Fucking crazy. And uh, so I fucking told them I will stay. And they were like, good, don't leave, don't leave. The 12th hour came. And inside the 13th hour, this woman came back and grabbed me and she said, I'm the head administrator for the hospital. And you can't be here. And I argued her and I said, well, I'm not leaving. She didn't like that. She was pretty cocky, man, pretty stuck up. She's like, look, you have no money, no insurance. 
you can't be here at Stanford University. It's, that's how it is. And I was like, I'm not leaving. All of a sudden, they had the guards surrounding me. She went back and inside of an hour and a half, and she had called eight hospitals. No, it was eight counties. It was 32 hospitals. That's what it was. Eight counties around San Francisco and said, looking for me a bunk mate, you know? She came back with a look of defeat and said, well, I guess uh, you got your wish, Mr. Williams. I guess we have to keep you. I looked down and I looked at the guards and I saw all of it. And a tear ran down my fucking eye and <laughs> my face. And I said, I guess you do have to fucking keep me. And motherfucker, as soon as I said that, I snapped my fingers and I tried to escape. And the guards ran after me. <laughs> and they put me in a fucking wheelchair after they caught me, handcuffed me, took me up to the main ward. Some nice nurse came up and fed me a turkey sandwich and I passed out on her lap. Well, I was in my new home now. <laughs> and my doctor's name was Doctor Who. And she was this little Vietnamese woman. And she was the head of the mental ward there. And um, she had one of her doctors was this honky I didn't really care about. Some dick. Textbook dick. At one point after a week of being there... Which wasn't that bad. You know, you had decaf coffee. That sucked. And you could only go out for uh, <laughs> five uh, 15-minute breaks a day. You were inside all day, man. It sucked. Sometimes you'd be really jonesing that fucking cigarette, too. The, the doctor that I had, I wasn't happy with, so I told Doctor Who, and I was like, look... I didn't fucking swindle my way into Stanford as a fucking crackhead skeleton just to get this guy to fucking treat it. And she laughed. <laughs> and she said, let me see what I can do, you know? And, you know, a couple days later she came back and said, well, we decided you were a special case, me and the, the board here at the hospital. And I was like, I'm a special case? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, um... She was like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and give you an art therapist. And I was like, an art therapist? Never knew what that was. Never heard of art therapy. 2004. And um, Sylvia was uh, the woman that was assigned to me. She was pretty cool. Yeah, she was amazing. She was amazing the whole time, man. She has had the most wonderful fucking heart. I haven't seen somebody be that kind, you know, <laughs> especially in the mental health system, but you know, this was part of the payoff I had put into getting here was to get this kind of sweet ass treatment, man. And everybody really deserves it, but uh, the way the world's set up, guys, I'm sorry about that. I just got one break. And I got to work with really kind people, man. She gave me assignments, you know. One was a clay assignment. 
when they made a Mickey Mouse on a cross crucified to a cross. She thought that was great. I did some sand art. It was therapeutic, man. We had access to this huge art room, you know, and you can get use anything in there you wanted. Tons of shit. One day she saw I was so bummed out, she brought a dog in, a, a, a support dog. And once I responded well to that, she brought in all these other animals. <laughs> and I kept getting to hang out with the animals and stuff. And finally, um, you know, one of the last assignments while I was in there, she gave me a... It was a stream of consciousness drawing featuring uh, two clowns trying to capture a stray cat on a fence and on the fence there was a health warning from the medieval age it said Minglas Luftras with two hens at the bottom and one's all if you don't smoke crack you still die I told her about my inferiority and <laughs> I told her everything you know I was like I don't think I'm smart enough to be at Stanford it's kind of ironic that I'm here and she was like I beg to differ at the end of the show I'm gonna bring on the doctor that actually graded my paper who worked in the English department and was corresponding with the uh, psychological department and everything she's gonna tell me how she gave me an A <laughs> all thanks to Sylvia The roommate situation there was a tad bit goofy. First you had this one dude, then maybe he had these bulging ass eyes, and he was like, raving mad. He didn't last long, he was like two days. And then the next week belonged to some kid who showed up and had a bad meth problem, smoked meth in the bathroom and got booted, put in a maximum security loony bin. And then I met William Adams, and uh, when I met him, you know, he was this guy that was a mortician, and he was a surfer, and he had surfed under the Golden Gate Bridge in the most shark-infested waters, mind you, in the world, is under the Golden Gate, and then, uh, you know, I asked him what the fuck he was doing in there. And he was like, well... How I got here was really, I took a pair of scissors and tried to cut my throat out. After I cut all my hair off, which was down to the end of my back. I was like, damn, dude. I was like, why'd you do that? He wouldn't tell me. He said his wife got fucking upset, called the cops, the cops came, beat him up, gave him a black eye. He had a black eye. But we had the same eyes. It was like looking into myself in a weird way. The staff was concerned. They had us on name alert because my name is Adam Williams, his name is William Adams. You can see where it was all going. We became friends, and he used to tell us ghost stories about things that happened to him in the mortician business, both in America and China. Equally were kind of frightening, but had funny endings, you know? He was a good dude. 
in the end, before he left, he was like, I know I didn't answer your question, but I'm going to tell you right now, me and my wife, we lost our daughter when we were younger. And last week, I had a, you know, young girl come in. She was the same age. And I couldn't handle it, and I had a breakdown. She looked like her. He wasn't there long. He was only, like, there for a week and a half. He said his wife was going to pick him up. He said I mattered to him. He thanked me for having a good heart. And I said, don't forget about me, William Adams. And that was the end of it. After William Adams left, I got assigned a new doctor. Dr. Quatch. He was working under Doctor Who. He was very in-depth and a very kind man. And he thought that I was a very interesting dude, you know. Most of these guys that I've ever met, you know, most people are just normal, you know, people, yuppie, kind of whatever. You know, you gotta give them the benefit of doubt on some level. I guess you don't. I guess if they're not really hobos or punks, then they kind of can go fuck themselves. <clears throat> but I was there to get a proper diagnosis. I think one of the things he was trying to teach me was not everything's in black and white. He was like, you know, it's not always, you know, fight or flight. But he saw that I had it. And he threw a couple examples at me of what would trigger me out. And he's taking notes. You know, a couple more days go by. These 15 fucking minute breaks are killing me. But while I was sta Stanfording my fucking cigarettes in these 15 minute breaks, <laughs> three in a row. There was a girl, her, she was 18 years old. She was half Japanese and half Italian. Her dad was a member of the Morgan family. He fucking was an importer-exporter, like George Costanza would say. <laughs> I guess her uh, mom was a famous operatic musician and was singing 12th century Japanese medieval, you know, opera pieces. Very difficult. She was training her daughter Hannah to fucking do that shit. And then one day her mom just decided, oh, I'm gonna kill myself. I guess there wasn't any rhyme or reason or anything. She just fucking offed herself. There's always a reason, y'all. <laughs> But in those really weird instances, sometimes there's not. Poor Hannah fucking collapsed. They brought her to the hospital, and she's been here for a minute. Pretty little girl. She taught me about Japanese art, agriculture. 
about pentacles and pentagrams in the process and how that's where they originally were used before magic. They were crop indicators in Japan. The pentagram meant it was going to be a southern crop for the year. And a pentacle meant a northern crop for the winter, you know. Before I went to bed that night, Dr. Quatch was like, Hey, Adam, not everything's in black and white. It's really eerie. <laughs> he kind of walked off. I went to bed and I had this really awesome dream about Bruce Wayne and Sailor Moon. They were like American pickers. <laughs> they were going from one sweet-ass antique shop to the next, you know, looking for all this cool-ass shit. It was everything cool I ever saw in these stores. And I've seen a lot of cool-ass shit, just like a lot of you have. Everything was in these stores, man. And, you know, one minute I'm hanging out with Sailor Moon and Bruce Wayne. They're kind of professing their love to each other. <laughs> it's kind of a weird dream. I'm kind of a weird cat. All of a sudden, the fucking ground and them, they all kind of started disappearing. And it was all black for a minute. Now I was having a nightmare. I was at the Cunningham house from Happy Days. And inside were the kids from Village of the Damned. Those little, bland, those little blonde motherfuckers. <laughs> and then the, uh, they were with their Aunt Susan, who was actually Aunt Susan, the woman who played Aunt Susan on Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. I don't know, go look it up. I don't remember her name. Anyway, uh, playmate, you know, she's like, where's Uncle Harold, you guys? And they all speak at the same time and at once, and they're all, he's out on the porch, Aunt Susan, and they're like, and she's like, why are you kids talking that way? Like, happy Halloween, Aunt Susan, and it's Halloween. And she's like, okay, that's enough, ha ha. So where's Uncle Harold? And the one little girl's all like, She's uh, he's out on the porch, Aunt Susan, and she Aunt Susan looks scared already. She goes outside, you know. Where is he? Where is he? I don't see him. And a rope falls down, and Aunt Susan looks even more frightened. And the one little boy goes, "We know what you did, Aunt Susan. We know you chopped him up into bits and put his dismembered pieces into a bucket on the roof." And she's like, what the hell are you talking about? And they're like, all start talking together again. They're coming for you, Aunt Susan. They're coming for you. And then they pull the rope. And these pieces of Uncle Harold come falling down like some EC comic. Just blood and guts. All over fucking Aunt Susan. It was really vivid, man. I remember. I was like, god damn. She's like... You know, and screaming at the top of her fucking game. And all of a sudden, I appeared. How the fuck did I get there? And I, I knew I was lucid. I was having a lucid nightmare, yo.
It's the only time I ever had a lucid anything. And I could see my hands. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. And I flipped them off. And uh, I made them go away. And this sidewalk appeared in front of me. And I walked down at just a 30 feet or whatever. And this little, you know, not a little, but a life-size mirror, rather, was in front of me. And when I looked in the reflection, I was covered with blue and red feathers. Blackfoot and Seminole. And this familiar wind came and blew it away. And when I saw myself, I was, uh, I was uh, purple. And I had these white stripes on my head with white dreads coming out of the back of my head. And I was looking at myself in the spirit world. And I could tell that I was there already. And time had no meaning. It had no meaning at all. When I got out of bed after I had the dream, the clock had struck three in the main hallway. It was eerie, man. I could feel every molecule everywhere, man. <laughs> I knew I was totally different. I needed a tape recorder from the nurses. But they didn't have anything to give me at that time, but it didn't matter because that image was already burnt into my head. Straight up. Later on in the day, it turned out that I was going to get released. I was like, well, I never got, I never got the, you know, diagnosis. And they were like, well, I don't know what their problem was. They just didn't want to give me the diagnosis. They let me out. They gave me a ticket to some halfway house, told me I would have this free room and rent and da 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 I didn't know it was a halfway house for fucking convicts. As soon as I got in there, I fucking flipped out, dude. It was a lunatic bin, man. It was a fucking lunatic asylum. It wasn't cool, man. I was locked in there for fucking 20 hours. After I flipped out in that fucking halfway house. Those guys didn't like that shit too much. Oh, and I got to see all kinds of shit. Electroshock therapy people being tortured, somebody carried off to a lobotomy, screaming, No! By the time the doctor had come around all smug-ass the third time, he asked me, uh, So how are you doing today again? And I was like, I'm fine, I'm just ready to go home, man, you know. People screaming around me. He's like, I bet you're ready to go, huh? Kind of hoarding it over me, I was like, yep. About an hour later, he came back and he goes, you're good to go. Scared out of my mind. Not properly diagnosed. I went back to Stanford. <laughs> and I met up with Dr. Quatch and I said, I haven't graduated yet. 
I haven't graduated from Stanford yet. And he was like, hold on a second, Mr. Williams. And he went back and he checked something out. He came back and he goes, well, you still got an account with us. I said, well, I never had any money to begin with, so how does that work? He goes, I'm not quite sure. They put me back in old age, too. And for the next 18 days, I would have stayed there. Pretty grim. Finally, this one girl came in, and she was psychotic. And she was, like, staring me down, and I was like, don't fucking look at me, dude. I was pissed off. And she had a cold, a cold cup of water, you know? And she tossed it at me. In the mist, you know? And she turned around and I took the same cup and I filled it up with water. And when she turned around, I fucking threw it in her face and said, Cool off, bitch! <laughs> well, I had to go to my room. The next day, Kwa Chan, who <laughs> came into my room and they said, Well, you don't have fucking schizophrenia and you're not bipolar. We know what you're diagnosed with and we want to put you on the right thing. And they had diagnosed me properly with complex po post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> Turned out they had sent me to that fucking place on purpose. They kind of figured out what was going to happen and how I would react and that I would come back. Well, I guess their guesstimation worked out. And from that point, I was properly diagnosed. I had to go in for a fucking court hearing to get the hell out of there. And it wasn't nice. Um, you know, there was this point where they were like, well, you have no money and you have no job and you have no family or support system to go back to. And because of the way you came in here, we're considering putting you on conservation. I was like, oh, fuck, no, you're not. And if you don't know what that means, boys and girls, that means that they will keep your ass. Well, you know, I wasn't about to let that shit happen. I called up William Adams. And I said, look, man, I know you're the head of the San Francisco Mortician Guild. I need you to pretend that I got a job with you guys and that you're going to be putting me up. And at that time, I hadn't been striped on my head yet. Or my hands, for that matter. And, uh, he came through like a champ. He talked to the administration. He said I was going to be doing cleanup service. They asked me, are you okay with your, uh, stability cleaning up, uh, deceased bodies? I said, oh, yeah, it's right up my alley. <laughs> Later on, I called William Adams and thanked them. He said, well, the deal's still open, man, if you want it. And I said, nope. No thanks. I don't want to be a mortician. I'm going to stay a cartoonist. And uh, that was the end of it. There's a lot of shit that happened in between fucking getting released from Stanford and the point I'm going to start at now, but because of time restraint and all this other crap and because the story will go on forever, I just want to cut to the shit and to get to the end. Basically, after I got out of Stanford, you know, the only part I'll really tell you is that I felt metal as fuck. It was the biggest gamble I'd ever played. I got a proper diagnosis.
And unfortunately, you can't live at Disney World, but you have to go back into reality. Um, before I left, I had found out my bill would have been a half a million dollars, guys. Oh, man. You know, I have never even seen that money in my entire life. <laughs> that much money. <laughs> I'm a poor fuck. I kind of prefer it that way. Money turns people into fucking dicks. Anyway, um, you know, I'll hit money here shortly, ironically. And when I get it, I won't keep it. No matter. I had gotten out. I'd met some kid in San Jose. He gave me some fucking weed and tore out a, a phone book page out of a phone book. Out of a phone booth, which still existed. And um, put some weed in it, gave it to me. I fucking hit the road, man. I couldn't wait. I just felt free as a motherfucker. I couldn't wait to get back to Seaside, tell Chris what had happened, and then I was going back to Colorado, and I was going to fucking start over, like I said, you know, get my shit going again. I needed to make that report, though, you know, to Seaside before I did. So I uh, hit the road. I got to Arcata that night, you know, it's about, you know, a good fucking three and a quarter 350. I don't know how many miles that is. It's out there. Um, but I made it and I slept by the highway that night and I dumpstered a sleeping bag. When I woke up freezing cold, wet, <laughs> crack of dawn shit, I fucking put out my thumb and about, I don't know, three cars later, this you know, Chevy camper motherfucker pulled over, it's dude Hesher with long hair, you know, he's blasting some metal out of the car. Where are you going to, man? I was like, well, I'm going all the way up the coast to fucking, uh, I'm going all the way up to uh, Seaside, man. And he goes, you know, you're on a southbound ramp, right? I was like, no. <laughs> and he goes, well, get in. And I was like, well, aren't you heading south? And he goes, nah, man, I took the wrong exit. And you must be the luckiest motherfucker I know. To get a fucking hot shot off of the wrong ramp. I was like, God damn, I guess I fucking am. Jesus. Got to know him, man. His name was Doug. Metalhead. Had no money. I gave him all the money I had left. like 30 bucks. I was able to swindle before I hit the road. Uh, went all in the gas and it fucking ate it up. We fucking made it up to the Oyster Bar along Highway 101, which is pretty, you know, a lot of them, man. There's a lot of them. He pulled over. He got three gallons of fucking oysters. Made 30 bucks. He's all, let's go. We got up the road. He was like, we're going to run out of gas again. And I was like, you ever seen that episode of uh, Seinfeld where Kramer just keeps riding? He goes, I don't watch TV. I said, Doug, let it ride. Motherfucker. That thing went on E for 250 fucking miles. I shit you not. Dude, this guy's eyes were lit up like a kid at Christmas. He's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Finally, you know, we got up to this fucking beach. I don't know where the fuck we were, man. It was up there. <laughs> and uh, we pulled over and he got in his van and he started doing donuts on the beach. I was like, that's a waste of gas. <laughs> but he looked so happy. I was like, fuck it. <laughs> and um, it was pretty cool. 
I didn't know what he was doing, really. We cracked open these oysters, man. We had a 12-pack of fucking Michelob. <laughs> Sat there and did fucking ro roasted oysters and Michelob. Crawled back to the van, man. And uh, I was like, oh shit, I got some weed in my pocket. And he goes, you got fucking weed, motherfucker? Hook that shit up. I'm dying over here. I was like, no problem. He goes, you know what, though? Seriously, I'm dying. I said, you're fucking dying. Told me a story about how when he was a kid, he was the best pool player in fucking 50 states. Motherfuckers would come all over the world to challenge his ass. 14, 15-year-old kid. Nobody could beat him, man. One guy got hot-headed, decided to attack Doug. Doug took the fucking pool stick and cracked it over his head. Long story short, he did 15, got out, met his probation officer. They fell in love. She was working with the DA, cocaine. One day she had a Christmas party and asked Doug to do drugs, and he didn't do drugs. He engaged. A year later, he had a syringe hanging out of his arm, and she booted his ass. He took his fucking long-ass hair, man. He had his cool-ass fucking metal hair, dude, like Sebastian Bach hair, you know? It's pretty cool, man. He fucking pulled it back, dude, and uh, right behind it, there was the a golf ball size fucking tumor motherfucker I mean I shit you not it was a brain tumor like a golf ball was just glued to his fucking head I can not believe it man it was uh disturbing looking I started crying man he goes ah don't don't worry about it dude he's like I only got like a week to fucking live you know I'm gonna go up to fucking Bellingham outside of Bellingham and I know a place I want to go, and that's where I want to die. I was like, God damn, dude. I was like, you got that brain tumor for doing drugs? And he goes, yep. I was like, God. If that don't put the fear into some of you motherfuckers, nothing ever will. We got back on the road, man, the next morning. We had a spare change a few times, but we made it up the road. And by the time we got to Seaside, I was like, fuck this, man. I'm going to go with Doug, you know? I told him, I was like, you don't have to die alone, bro. I'll go with you. And uh, he's like, nope. And he said, look, man, there is no tomorrow, man. There's only today, and we're lucky we fucking got that. He goes, dude, I know you got a lot of people that love you in your life. Go be with them, man. They need you. I was like, holy shit, dude. I watched them drive off, man. I took the solemn look, at, and I'd look back at all the shit that I just did. How I got to fucking Stanford. <laughs> it was pretty fucking crazy, man. I watched them drive off. I walked up the street to the fucking Seaside International Motel or whatever, and Chris was there, and he's like, oh my god, holy shit, gave me a big old hug, 
We threw some Motley Crew on, some Motorhead, smoked a fucking joint. And I was like, I, I didn't think preachers were supposed to do shit like that. And he goes, says who? <laughs> he saluted me, man. And from that point, I knew I was a new motherfucker. I got on the charter bus from Seaside and rolled back to Portland. And I went straight to that Greyhound, man, and I was like, I'm ready. When I got back to Portland, I found Duke. <laughs> and I told him what had happened, you know, and he was like, that's amazing. And I told him I was heading back to Denver to start my life over, and he goes, that's the right bus to catch. And I knew he was right. I went back to the Greyhound, ready to go, man. I had done all this fantastical shit and kind of cured myself at least for a year. <laughs> but something was wrong. Um, I remember before I left, I was behind the Amtrak station looking for something. And this time I went back behind the Amtrak station and I fucking found it. There he was. Standing at about seven feet tall. This real crack owl. Looked like a real grim reaper. The part that I leave out of the story until now is on purpose because when I was going through a series of mental digressions for 250 pages, including a bunch of shit I just didn't tell you because this is a podcast and it's not a book on fucking tape, motherfucker, okay? But... I was like, um, pretty concerned because I kept seeing a real crack owl in the mirror. It flashes, and when I saw this thing, it was a slimy skull with the fucking, almost like a goat hair fucking reaper cloak. And whenever he'd say stuff, he talked like a little kid. I didn't get it. I just thought I was losing my mind. When I talked, when I told this to fucking Doctor Who at Stanford, I was like, I might be schizophrenic because I'm seeing this shit. She's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You got CPTSD. And that's, that's it. You're not schizophrenic. Whatever you're experiencing should subside and it won't keep going. It's just from pressure. Well, she was wrong and right because now I'm actually... <laughs> seeing a real crack owl you gotta remember guys crack owl was a solo acoustic death metal comedy act that I did in Denver for fucking three years I did 150 shows played with the undead and a bunch of other motherfuckers and I'd wear this cheesy ass Grim Reaper outfit <clears throat> this time I was standing in front of a real one that was about a foot taller than me and I wasn't scared and I walked up to him and I put my arms out and he went to grab my hands and I did the fakey thing on him and I gave him a hug and I said I understand now I get it and when I pulled myself away it was me and I was seven years old wearing a Battlestar Galactica shirt and I said I gotta go now and I walked away and I started crying as a little kid screaming at myself 
and train was coming by and the brakes were on the train and it's it kind of bled into the scream I turned around and I was gone as a little kid I looked over at the train and there was crack owl waving goodbye at me hopping the freight hopping the car out of this dimension whatever agent of chaos he was and from whatever dimension he was I had exemplified it and I'd passed whatever test was given to me and he helped save my life I waved goodbye and he disappeared look man uh, after I went back and listened to this shit I fell into tears I'm not gonna cry now I need to be solid for you guys more but I'll let you know I fucking cry like a motherfucker but I listened to this ending where I am crying telling you this shit and I'm listening to this right now and this is something more solid because we need to be more solid right now it's easy to fucking fall apart it's easy to fucking go eight different directions it's easy to lose your fucking mind you got a buddy out here, man. And don't make a mistake, man. I got fucking enemies I make every goddamn day. People hurting me this year. <laughs> they know who they are. Don't you? But, nonetheless, <laughs> we have to care about each other. And you do need to pray for your enemy. Specifically, these people who are fucking hurting you, man. Like, into tender spots like the mental health industry, for example. It's one thing where your chick hurts you or your dude hurts you, your mate, whatever. It's another thing when uh, the medical profession that you're trying to trust isn't there for your ass. And everybody knows it's a nightmare. I do fucking solemnly swear to you motherfuckers. Solemnly? Is that <laughs> I solemnly swear to uphold mental health value, man, and to try to make something better in my life every day to achieve and acclimate towards this goal where I get to actually build these restoration rooms. I said it way earlier in this episode. I'm going to fucking do shit like that. Holistic ways. Holistic ways to do shit. There's a lot of different ways to do shit. We're coming into that age, man. You can't trust your government. I'm not telling you to fucking riot against them, or I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm just saying, I don't trust my fucking government. Many people don't. Many do not. But you have to be able to trust yourself. And sometimes we just do these rotten things. In order to trust yourself, you have to be able to look at your mistake and take merit in it. We do it every day, every year. <laughs> Maybe some days we get off the fucking hook, you know. Those are breather days. But, you know, when you're active and you're intermingling and interacting with fucking people, man, you know, there's going to be bad blood. Until next time, guys. Try to keep your fucking head during this fucking virus. Take care of your own shit. 
if you got to get off some fucking pills and you don't know what to do and you're just desperate and maybe you're hearing this shit, you can fucking call me. Worst case, Ontario. I don't give a fuck. Right here on Anchor, my number's 917-484-3137. My email is adamairwilliams at gmail.com. I'm breathing the most toxic fucking fumes here in Seattle. And I want you guys to know that I'm going to stick with you to the end. All right, guys, until next time. And until we meet again. You've been listening to Adam Air MD GED Underground Cartoon Therapy.